So Nick, hey, so excited to have you on the show today and talk a little bit about syndication and especially from your perspective as a practicing attorney in the syndication space. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Yes, very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So Nick, let's talk about what's going on in the market today. Obviously, there's been a tremendous amount of capital that's been flowing into commercial real estate, multifamily, syndications. Uh, A lot of people talk about commercial real estate and multifamily being very recession, not recession-proof, but very recession-resistant, I would call it. And so just from your seat where you sit as a lawyer, as an attorney helping operators like me set up these entities and do syndications, how has the market changed for you over the last couple of years as you've been doing this? And what do you kind of see happening over the next maybe couple of years or months as the market shifts into this kind of recessionary, inflationary market? Just what do you think about the market sitting where you sit as an advisor? Yeah. So I think one of the big things that I've seen is some of the returns have gotten a little smaller. Part of that, I, from what I'm seeing, is that there's lots of capital out there. So a lot more people are competing for deals, which makes the cost go higher. So that, the investor returns have dropped a little bit. I think with you know how the economy is going now, we might see a bit more of that. But uh, like you said, I do think, I wouldn't say nothing's necessarily recession-proof, but you know it's one good place to be if we are in a recession. Uh, commercial real estate, especially multifamily, people are going to need a place to live. And so it's one place that I think can uh, fare pretty well, even in tough economic times. Yep, I think so. And especially with inflation, it kind of works works with us and against us, right? So as an, as an owner in an inflationary environment, rents are going up, especially when we have such a supply problem on single-family homes and we have such an affordability problem with single-family homes. That works in our favor, pushing rents higher. Where people can get in trouble is when they have you know short-term financing and rates are going up. And when rates go up, if they need to refinance, if they have a balloon payment, their note gets called due at the wrong time, mm-hmm. right? Then some people can get in trouble. So with that in mind, as you're working with some of your clients, like how do you help them navigate that? How are they operating to make sure they maybe get longer-term debt or lower loan-to-value on their debt? Yeah. So you hit on one thing that this economy has done as well is that as it's getting a little bit tighter, it's going to make people have to be actually better at their job. Because before returns were just flowing and you could do a deal that maybe wasn't the best, but it could be saved by the time it's time for you to exit. So now one of the things that I'm looking at is I don't underwrite myself, but I say, hey, make sure you've uh, done sensitivity analysis. Make sure you're checking this through because there's things that are changing and we don't really know what's going on. And then on the loan front, kind of same thing is that we want to make sure you're working with a reputable loan uh, lender, um, having a good uh, relationship with them so you can get those more favorable terms. Because before you could say, oh, you know, this rate's not that great, but in three years, we're going to sell it and we're going to be 10x. So it's not a big deal. Now we don't quite know that that's going to happen. So you got to be a lot more conscious of that. Yeah, I definitely think that there's some operators who didn't execute their business plan and got bailed out by a rising market. Well, that's not going to be the case here in the next uh, couple of years as people kind of prep for a possible recession and rising interest rates. So, so Nick, let's talk specifically about syndications. We've done 18 of them. I would like to think that we dotted every I, crossed every T. We're really good at what we do. So I think I've done it the right way by the book. <laughs> but if I was a new client of yours, right? 
and we were engaging and you were going to help me go through this first syndication or maybe my third or fourth or fifth syndication. Let's talk about syndication basics for a minute. What are the things when you engage with somebody that you want to look at when they're, they're doing a syndication, the structure of the syndication, how to kind of prepare to do the capital raise, but get all your kind of legal things all your ducks in a row beforehand. So if we were having a first conversation or first couple of conversations, what are some things that you would want to look out for? What are some questions you would ask to make sure that an operator is going to get set up for success? Yeah. So one of the big things that I'd ask initially is who do you think your investor pool is or what does it look like? Because that's going to help us determine which exemptions might apply to you. Because uh, when we're talking about syndication, you're selling a security. And so if you're selling a security, you either have to register that or have an exemption. And so syndications are typically dealing with exemptions. And depending on what your investor pool looks like, such as if, if they're accredited or sophisticated or even qualified, that's going to determine which exemptions might work best for your deal. So that'd be one of the first things that I say is, okay, who do you think is going to be investing? And realistically, especially if you're doing your first to third deal, it's mostly going to be the people that are pretty close to you. And so I'd say, okay, who are the people around you? Are they accredited, sophisticated, qualified, because that's probably going to be where the bulk of your investors are coming from. Got it. So just so our audience, in case this is maybe their first time listening to my podcast, even though we have hundreds of shows, they should listen to them all. Just define for us accredited, sophisticated, qualified, in case somebody doesn't know. Yes. So accredited, there's lots of different ways to qualify, but the most common way is if you're an individual, you make $200 or more for the past two years. I expect to make that much again this year or through your network, or sorry, net worth is $1 million or more exclusive of your primary residence. So that's accredited. Sophisticated is a little bit more gray, but essentially we're trying to see, do you possess the resources either through yourself or through a purchaser representative to determine the risks and merits of this investment? So based upon past investments, your work, your education, uh, that sort of stuff. Can you see, does this make sense for me? Um, so that's sophisticated. And then qualified investors typically are worth $5 million or more. Got it. Love it. Thanks for clarifying. So one of the things I've noticed that when people go into a syndication, they don't always know everything that's involved. So let's just peel back the onion a little bit about some of the different documents, paperwork that and a great syndication attorney such as yourself is going to help us do. So let's first talk about the private placement memorandum, right? The PPM, the, the disclosure document. Just describe that for us and some of the major pieces that should be in that. Then we can talk a little bit about the operating agreement. We can talk a little bit about the subscription agreement, some of those types of documents that are key to putting this all together. But let's start with the PPM. When you're drafting that or you're sitting with the client to draft it, what's important? What are the major pieces of it? What are the things that are absolute must-haves? Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is that it's not necessarily meant to sell your deal. It's going to look kind of scary. It's going to say the world could end. You could get zero money back. Um, yeah. I always tell clients that as well because they're like, wait, it says they might lose their money. It's like, yeah, that could happen. We hope it won't. Because the big, at least in, in, from my perspective, the primary objective of, of PPM is to apprise the would-be investor of the risk of this. Because the operator knows the ins and outs. They know what they saw in due diligence. They know the things that are keeping them up at night about this deal. And the investor doesn't necessarily know that. So in the PPM, we're disclosing those sorts of things. So it's going to seem a little bit scary, but I always say you'd rather have them be scared away from the PPM when you don't have their money versus for you to not disclose something, you have their money, and now that scary thing actually happened, it's going to be significantly worse for you. Good advice. I like that. 
I like that. So full, fair, and adequate disclosure, right? So when I did my first PPM and we've done, I don't know, I think 30 of them, right? Because we had a fund before and we were doing lending and we had a private equity fund and all this kind of stuff. My syndication attorney for that and my uh, SEC attorney, basically, not an SEC attorney, but it was a, he was a securities attorney. He said, Josh, look, part of the thing we have to do here is we have to think about all the questions that an investor could ask, even if they don't know to ask. So we have to kind of like brainstorm, what are all the things that they might ask down the road that they don't know to ask? Because we have to solve this kind of full, fair, and adequate disclosure. So we literally sat around a conference table and just asked each other crazy questions, like weird, whatever we could think of, <laughs> to think of what are the things that an investor could ask us. So just describe that. Like crafting a PPM is literally, it's kind of this ham and egg process between the attorney and the client, the client being the syndicator, the operator, coming up with all of these risk scenarios. What could happen? What could not happen? What if this happens? What if that happens? What's that like for you sitting in your seat? You know, as a transactional attorney, that's kind of my job. Even if it's not a syndication, I'm always trying to think of, okay, what could happen? What could go wrong here so that we can get ahead of it in our documents in advance? Uh, I think it's funny that you mentioned that you kind of go around and say, you know, what's going on? One of the things that I actually ask clients is I say, hey, you know, talk to your wife or talk to your husband or somebody close that's not in this field and see what questions they have. Um, because those are going to be, we want somebody who has no idea and we want to be able to answer all of their questions as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because often it's people that don't know what to ask that will ask the craziest question that you didn't think of. <laughs> They're like, okay, now I got to put that in the PPM because it's a question that somebody might ask down the road. Um, next document that's really critical is the subscription agreement, right? And this is critical because depending on what kind of exemption we're using, 506B, 506C are obviously very popular. That subscription agreement is what where the investor, passive investor, limited partner, is identifying, are they accredited, qualified, sophisticated? Is there a relationship, right? So just explain to our audience, if they're not familiar, what is a subscription agreement? What's its purpose? And some key parts that need to be in there. Yeah. So a subscription agreement, there's going to be some sort of entity. Usually it's an LLC or a partnership, but it, it can vary. And so part of what the subscription agreement does is that it makes you as the investor say, yes, I'm agreeing to be a member or a shareholder or a partner in this entity, because usually the uh, entity's governing documents are signed mainly just by the managers. And it'd be quite cumbersome to have every single investor resign every single time. So the subscription agreement says, I've read the PPM, I've read the, say, operating agreement. I know I've read the risks. I've talked with my financial advisors, my tax planners. And with all of that, I'm deciding to move forward. And then, as you mentioned as well, there's certain things that they have to do to qualify themselves for the investment. So they're saying, yes, I am accredited or I am sophisticated and I, and I had a pre-existing relationship with you. Got it. The next document is that operating agreement, right? And this is really important to me because I have business partners. I have two other general partners that I invest with, my good friends, Glenn and Tyler. But I'm the CEO and the majority shareholder, and I have the final vote, right? And then there's limited partners who have a non-voting share. And so I want to make sure in that operating agreement that certain things are spelled out. And your operating agreement is essentially your governing document for that LLC, 
who can make decisions, how can they make decisions is it through a vote is, you know, what, what is each vote worth? What percentage? So Nicholas, talk about the operating agreement, how critical it is, and maybe some mistakes that people might make, maybe things that they don't include in an operating agreement that are critical that they should include. Yeah. So the operating agreement is kind of the guidelines from the, for the entity. With that as well, you, we're trying to predict, okay, what are some things that can happen? And let's try to resolve these now before it happens, because it's much easier to resolve something when there's clear heads and nothing really at stake versus if we haven't discussed it and now it's at issue, and there's hot tempers, it's going to be a lot harder to resolve. So that's what we're trying to accomplish in the uh, operating agreement or whatever the governing documents are going to be. I'd say one big thing that I see when I'm, particularly when I'm reviewing, uh, you know, subscription agreements and PPM documents for a client that's looking to invest is as an operator, you want to make sure that your PPM and your operating agreement are mirroring each other, or at least are congruent and not incongruent. Because I've seen some where the PPM says one thing and the operating agreement says another thing. And so that's a problem because ultimately the operating agreement is the thing that prevails. And so as an operator, you want to make sure that those are driving together and you're not telling people one thing with the PPM, but really having the ability to do something else in the operating agreement. Are you ready to automate and explode your real estate investing? We're searching for extremely motivated individuals who are sick and tired of wasting time and want to finally see real results from their real estate investing business. We're searching for investors looking to get to the next level and become a bigger, better version of themselves while being a more successful real estate investing entrepreneur. Apply for mentoring and coaching at joshcantwellcoaching.com forward slash podcast. That's joshcantwellcoaching.com forward slash podcast. Yeah, the operating agreement is what's going to govern how those decisions are made. Guys, just remember our audience, the PPM is just disclosing that language, those bullets, how it's going to be governed. That's just disclosing that to possible investors. So the PPM doesn't govern the LLC. It's just a disclosure document to disclose to the world how this entity is going to be managed and how it's managed on paper. right? So if there is a disagreement down the road, if there's a death in the partnership, whatever, that it's done that way. Another thing, Nick, that a, a great attorney that handles this stuff can do is review other types of documents, construction agreements, for example, or property management agreements. We engage with third-party property management and they do the, the, the day-to-day property management for us because we really do a lot of construction and I own the construction company. So talk a little bit about construction agreements. I like to use, if I'm hiring a third-party construction, like a cost plus fee construction agreement, and then the property management agreement. Because these, a lot of times, your lender won't fund the deal unless all these documents are agreed on and disclosed and signed as part of the loan commitment. So talk to them about those uh, agreements as well. Yeah. So for construction agreements, again, it's one thing that you really want to make sure that you're outlining everything. One of the big things I'd say you want in that is to make sure that you're stating who has the responsibility to handle what. Um, I had a client just recently they had their, uh, in Was- I'm licensed in California and Washington. And so this client was in Washington. And so there they call it labor and industries was basically doing a worksite check. And the client itself ended up being the one that was getting the fines. And that's through between the client and LNI. LNI says, I don't care about what your agreement is with the contractor. You're you on the worksite. So it's on you. 
But thankfully, we had a, a con agreement with the contractor that said, no, they're responsible for making sure that they're doing the safety checks and all the things in, in uh, that are required. And so while our client, my client had to pay that, ultimately, they're able to get it back from the contractor. And if we hadn't outlined those things, then it essentially probably would have been my client's responsibility to pay for all of that. So you want to think about Who's going to have the responsibilities? That's one of the big things. I'm willing with any contract. It's a negotiation of who's got responsibilities, who has rights when certain scenarios arise. Yep. And that construction agreement too, there's there's different types. I like the cost plus fee model because I like the disclosure of the cost. I want to know what the cost is for the labor, the material at cost. I don't mind paying the fee to the contractor for the work that they did. But I don't like the gray. This is me personally. I don't like the gray of, hey, they're just going to mark up materials X percent or mark up their labor X percent. And it's it's kind of not disclosed to me. So I prefer the cost plus fee model. I just did a coaching call before this, Nick, with our group. And they were talking about, hey, if there's overruns, like if there's a schedule, let's say it's a two-year schedule, there's a certain number of draws that are supposed to happen with the contractor and the contractor doesn't execute on time, on the schedule or on budget. So this this construction agreement would spell all that out because this is where, hey, if you've got a two or three million dollar budget to do a value-add improvement on a multifamily and they're behind schedule, it's costing real estate taxes, insurance, interest on your loan. Your loan could call be called due. So it's really critical that that gets in there and there's maybe some sort of penalty to the contractor if they're not on time and on budget, right? Yes. Yeah, and that's something that you'd want to make sure that you put in the contract because typically with a contract, if somebody's late, you're not going to be able to recoup the additional costs that that lateness incurs. In law, we call that special damages. And so in order to recover special damages, they have to be foreseeable. And typically the way to make it very clearly foreseeable is to say, hey, if you are late, here's the cost that I'm going to start incurring. And so you're going to be responsible for that. Yeah, got it. Love it. The other thing a guy like Nick could do for you is most large property managers, whether they're regional or national, they have an initial property management agreement that spells out what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, what their fees are. We typically, because we use fairly large property managers, we use asset living, they manage 100,000 doors. We use Trinity Multifamily, they've already managed 20,000 doors. We use RHM, they manage 13,000 doors. So they kind of have their standard agreement. But that doesn't mean that we have to just accept it carte blanche, right? We can look at the agreement, we can edit certain things, maybe certain fees, negotiate the management fee. You know, is are we paying the salaries for their people? Are they are we paying for the federal taxes or the health care? All of this is stuff that when you get an agreement, give it to a lawyer like Nick that they would review and spell this out for you, right? So that agreement is probably the one that doesn't get as much kind of renegotiation as the others, but because it's got a lot of it's a template, but it's still really important to have that reviewed and signed off. Yeah. So I always tell clients, you know, there's no such thing as a boilerplate or standard contract. It's your contract. So make sure that you're happy with it. Um, now with that, if they say this is the terms that we're only willing to give, then you can decide to go with that or go find someone else. But yeah, so there's usually not a whole lot of negotiation or editing with that. But even with that, still, we'll review it and we'll explain it to you so that you understand what's in this. What are my rights if something happens or who is paying those taxes? Because it's not so much necessarily that there's going to be bad things in there, but you just want to know what's in there so that you can plan accordingly and, and take your garner your actions uh, in light of the contract. Yeah. And Nick, the other thing I could think of that we have our attorney 
working on that is really important for you to work on with, with new clients is the other contracts. Like when you buy a 200 unit building, let's say you pay 15 million bucks for it or 20 million or whatever the number is, you're inheriting, if you're a lot of times inheriting these contracts that the former seller had. So you could have a contract for landscaping, contract for snow plowing, contract for the laundry, like laundry. That could be a contract that could have, you know, your you, these some of these laundry contracts we've inherited are five, seven, ten-year contracts, right? So all of that should be reviewed by a guy like Nick ahead of time, so that when you're going through due diligence, you engage Nick, you work with him, he gets copies of all that stuff, and he can kind of hunt and peck through it and say, you know, here's your commission on your laundry contractor, here's what you're signing up for on your landscape contractor, you know, here's a pre-negotiated water and sewer contract. Like these are all things that can absolutely hit your PL, your net operating income. And if you don't know these upfront when you're going through due diligence, you just inherit the building, you could be in for a world of hurt afterwards. So, Nick, just talk about you know, reviewing and, and even uh, modifying those contracts before the purchase. Yeah, that's something that we definitely want to review in the LOI, PSA, or where, whenever the due diligence is taking place. And because as you mentioned, a lot of these contracts are just inherited. If they're on the property, then when the new owner comes in, a lot of times the PSA will say you're inheriting these contracts or you have to delineate which ones are not going to be part of it. And so you want to know what those contracts are and how, how much they're cost, what they look like, because that can dramatically affect your underwriting. If you're putting in assumptions for a certain cost, thinking that, oh yeah, I know this company and they're great and they're who's going to handle it, not realizing that your property has a contract for that service for three or four more years, that could dramatically change your underwriting. And so, yeah, that's something that we handle in the due diligence process. And it's important to understand because there's been many times where we either say, no, that contract has to be canceled or we'll negotiate the price down because of how bad that contract is in the current market. Yeah. And I think that leads us to the last and final that I can think of and might not be the final, but it's certainly really important, which is the purchase and sales agreement, the PSA. Because PSAs for commercial real estate there is no template. There is no boiler. They're all custom. And you could put all kinds of modifications in there. You could have a 30-day due diligence period, 30 close, and a 30-day extension. A certain amount of earnest money down, earnest money after due diligence, earnest money to get an extension. That's pretty vanilla. That's how we do it. 30, 30, 30, earnest money, earnest money, earnest money if we need a cl- you know extension. So that's very vanilla. But Nick, I mean, these things can be... I mean, you could be splitting up closing costs. You could be splitting up transfer taxes. Uh, you could be splitting up. Uh, there could be certain rent prorations, expense prorations, all kinds of stuff. And so, this we could probably have a whole nother call just on this, <laughs> Nick. But if somebody's not crafting and reviewing the PSA and doing it in a timely way, because what you know, when you have an agreed upon LOI, the seller and the buyer want to get into contract usually as fast as possible. Right. And this is where an attorney that can review it quickly, provide feedback quickly, and kind of partner with not that you're not partnering with them, but for lack of a better word, working with collaborating with the seller's attorney and the buyer's attorney working together in a really kind of, again, collaboration that can actually make the deal and set the deal off to be heading the right direction. Versus if you have a PSA and and that negotiation gets ugly, it can be an ugly transaction starting right from the beginning. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say one of the big, I don't know if it's a caution or whatever, I'd say everybody wants to get the best deal, 
But remember, there's likely going to be an attorney reviewing it on the other side. So, you know, a lot of times a client will say, why don't you have it this or why don't you have it that? And I say, because that's not going to get through. Because if I was looking at that, I would say absolutely not. So you want to kind of strike a balance between making sure you're protected, making sure you get everything that you need in there, but also realizing the other side is going to be looking at it. And if you have some stuff that's kind of nonsense or just far overreaching, you're going to now be in a negotiation uh, back and forth, which is going to slow things down and might sow some a little bit of bad will and make the transaction that much more difficult. So keep in mind that, yes, we want to make sure that you're getting what you need, that you're protected, but you also got to realize the other side has somebody looking for them as well. And if we go shoot for the moon, then it's probably going to cause more problems than the benefit you get from it. Yeah, fantastic stuff. The last thing, last, last, which we don't need to, to peel back the onion too much on, but the last piece that also gets reviewed by Nick is your loan agreement, your loan agreement, right? So loan, when you get loan for commercial real estate, that also is a custom document. The bank might have a template, but again, some of those things are negotiable, editable, et cetera, et cetera. So when you get your loan docs, you got to make sure those get reviewed as well before closing. So you see that we've probably covered here at least eight or nine different documents that when you're going into a commercial real estate transaction that you need a good attorney, a good partner, a good advisor. And Nick McGrew and his firm is exactly that, right? So guys, I know if you've got an immediate need, again, Nick is licensed in California and Washington. If you have a need outside of that, you still want to talk to Nick, reach out at polymathlegal.com. If for some reason that Nick is not able to help you in your state, I'm sure he can refer you to somebody else that could. Again, polymathlegal.com. We'll put that in the in the show notes. And guys, there's so much other stuff. We look at our attorneys as absolute kind of partners in the transaction, collaborators, advisors, and an absolute must-have to have somebody who can get back to you quickly and really provide good advice quickly because these transactions don't wait forever. So Nick, listen, I know we're short for time, but I wanted to thank you for jumping on the show today. Any other places that people should be able to reach out to you or is the polymathlegal.com? Is that the best one? Yeah, polymathlegal.com and then all social media at polymathlegal as well. Fantastic stuff, Nick. Listen, thanks for joining me today. This was great. Thank you for having me. You were just listening to the Accelerated Investor Podcast with Josh Cantwell. If you enjoyed this episode and learned something new, help us build the AI community by leaving a review and five-star rating on our iTunes podcast channel. Also, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss another episode. To see passive investing opportunities, visit freelandventures.com passive. To start your journey toward the lifestyle you've always dreamed of with multifamily apartments, apply for one-on-one -on -one coaching with Josh at www.joshcantwellcoaching.com.